across all industries, there are significant differences between the companies that were on the lower end of the spectrum, the distribution of shareholder returns, and companies that were at the higher end, with those differences being more pronounced in some industries than others. So what's really driving a lot of the variance here is companies pulling ahead at the top of the distribution, right? It's kind of a group of companies that had very, very high shareholder returns. From McKinsey's Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. As you just heard Peter Stumpner, one of our guests today, point out, the gaps in performance between different sectors and also between the companies within those sectors has been increasing over the past year. And a big part of the driver in these gaps is a small group of companies that already had significant stock valuations before the COVID-19 crisis and which have pulled even further ahead since. We'll hear a lot more about them shortly as we examine the performance of capital markets over the past year and what it tells us about underlying economic and investment trends. Now let me introduce our guests. Peter is an associate partner in our New York office and leads our corporate performance analytics group within the strategy and corporate finance practice. He specializes in market and cross-industry analyses and is the co-author of a new article on McKinsey.com titled, The Impact of COVID-19 on Capital Markets One Year In. Also with us today is Tim Kohler, a partner in our Denver office, who helps lead our global team of corporate finance consultants. He serves a wide range of clients on corporate strategy, strategic planning, and resource allocation, as well as capital markets and mergers and acquisitions. Tim is also co-author of the best-selling book, Valuation, now in its seventh edition. Tim and Peter are also co-authors together of another new article on recent capital markets performance titled, Wall Street versus Main Street, Why the Disconnect? Tim, Peter, welcome. Thank you, Sean. It's great to be here. Thank you, Sean. So it's interesting that we're recording this on the 23rd of March, which is the exact anniversary of the day when the capital markets hit bottom in the slide sparked by the pandemic. Peter, can you first walk us through what's happened to stocks since that period? If you go back a little over a year, if you still remember those uh, pre-pandemic days, um, what you, you'll see is that like in 2019, the markets went up quite significantly. That momentum continued into uh, 2020. And the um, markets peaked in 2019, uh, on February 19, uh, 2020. And that was when market participants started to realize that this pandemic is going to have a significant impact. And um, markets started to decline first gradually and then, then quite suddenly. And, um, and there were a couple of days in early March of last year when markets declined over 10%. All sectors across the board sharply declined uh, in the early days of the pandemic. In mid-late March, we hit the turning point, and um, markets then, uh, after March 23rd, started to rebound. Some sectors actually recovered by June and turned positive, but others were still uh, significantly negative. The aerospace and defense industry or air and travel, like sectors that were significantly impacted by the travel bans and lockdowns and uh, working from home, while well, some other industries like um, healthcare supply or healthcare supplies or um, medical technology had already recovered. And then by October, that differentiation had pro- had become more pronounced, and, and the differentiation continued to advance. Right, some sectors actually declined a little bit between June and October, while others not only recovered but actually turned significantly positive by October. And 
I think what's what's really in- interesting here is that that steep decline at the beginning of a crisis is fairly normal. Along with the fact that it happens across the board, it's fairly normal. But the recovery was really fast, and it was faster than in, in some of pre- some of the previous crises. Then that basically that the difference continued to grow. The two things are really interesting here. One is that most sectors uh, actually recovered a year in and actually turned positive a year in, but not all of them. Uh, but what's also really interesting is that the difference between the top and the bottom sector actually didn't shrink. It continued to grow all the way up until February. Wow. Peter, thank you. And uh, Tim, over to you. You've analyzed several decades of capital market movements. How does this pattern compare to how stock markets reacted during earlier crises? This is a pretty typical pattern for a market you know, decline and rebound. So we saw the same pattern in, in 2008 and 2009, and we've seen the same pattern in the early 2000s. So what happens is when there is you know, bad news about the economy, the market and investors sort of, sort of panic typically retail investors, and so they sell a lot of stocks, right, almost everything. And so everything goes down quite a bit. But then the institutional investors come in and realize, okay, there are some sectors that are just way too undervalued at this point in time, and they start to buy, and it comes back. And as as Peter's pointing out, it comes back, you know, different by sector. So the market realizes that different sectors will be affected by COVID differently, um, and that's why over the year you see such a big gap, a uh, big difference across the sectors. The difference here is that this rebound occurred, the, the drop in the rebound occurred much more quickly than in many cases, partly because of the nature of the, the bad news, you know, a pandemic that sort of people, you know, don't know what's going to happen to the economy. And then sort of more of a, a sense that, okay, definitely this is, going to be bad for the economy, but it will affect different sectors differently. So the market is responding pretty rationally in terms of the way it comes up. So what impact, if any, have interest rates had on how capital markets have reacted to the pandemic? Rates have been exceptionally low, and central banks were, at the time, signaling that they would not raise them in the near future. We've been studying the impact of interest rates on valuations and the cost of equity for well over 20 years now. And what we have found is that uh, while the level of interest rates obviously affects the the corporate borrowing cost, it doesn't affect the cost of equity. Investors still demand the same returns um, regardless of what's happening to interest rates. That's just a little bit surprising because we've seen it like, you know, know, in the last, in the Great Recession, we see it now. As interest rates go up or down, the valuations of companies don't change very much, right? And it does make sense because if you're an investor or if you're a company, you can lock in your cost of your cost of debt, right? If you're an investor, you don't want to be making an investment on the assumption that interest rates will stay low, right? Because they could rebound and that would affect the valuation. So it's not surprising in a way that the cost of equity uh, has been relatively constant over this period of time. So it doesn't affect share prices the way you might expect that it does. Interesting. So typically, one would define the cost of equity capital as the risk-free interest rate plus a risk premium. So are you saying that this situation has been a little different because the risk-free rate is going down, but independently of the cost of equity? Yeah. 
Well, that's the, that's, the, that's the thing. We used to say that the return on government, long-term government bonds was the risk-free rate, right? And now there's a question about whether the market's perception of the risk-free rate is the same as the current yield on government bonds. As the, as the central banks in the U.S. and Europe and other places have begun to manipulate those rates, it is not clear that those really represent what a free market risk-free rate would be. So obviously some evidence of that, they've been doing a lot of buying of bonds, both government bonds and corporate bonds, quantitative easing in several ways, et cetera. And also you have a set of investors who are who are very risk-averse sort of moving into government bonds, also pushing up prices and, and lowering rates. So what we have found is the most logical way to sort of deal with this is we construct a synthetic risk-free rate based on long-term trends in the risk-free rate. We've seen a number of other banks and academics use this approach as well. So in addition to our research, some academic research and a lot of the banking research, while we come at it different ways, we come to the same conclusion that the typical cost of capital for uh, a large company is about 7% in real terms, and this is in the U.S. and Europe and Asia, and about 9% or so in nominal terms when you add 2% inflation or so. So um, that's what's going on and why there's a disconnect between the government bond rate and, and what, appear, what, what we used to think of as the risk-free rate. Thanks. Um, what about the effect of surplus cash, Tim? There was a lot of cash in the market last year, especially with consumer savings rates going way up in many countries. What kind of impact do you think that had on market performance? Yeah, the, the issue is that, that that cash is spread around quite a few people, not all of whom are investors, right? So, uh, you know, it appears as if consumers did save because there wasn't things to spend on, right? Those who were still, still employed and making money. And it will be interesting to see what they spend that money on going forward or whether they keep it as savings. It doesn't, however, appear to have affected the stock market per se. What really matters is, you know, the, the cash generating ability of the companies and investors. Investors sort of see that. Uh, so investors believe that consumers will shift more of that cash and spend on certain types of companies than they will go up. And if not, you know, they will go down. I think in this case, for example, the, the travel and leisure sector still hasn't recovered because we don't know what consumers will do with that cash yet, right? And whether they'll make it up or whether they may be hesitant to, to, to spend money on, on traveling for a while still. I suspect that it's not a major driver of, of returns, though. Thanks, Tim. So let's return to Peter. Um, Peter, you mentioned there are growing differences in the performance of various industry sectors. Have you seen similar gaps between companies within those sectors as well? What you see is that across all industries, there are significant differences between the companies that, had, um, that were on the lower end of the spectrum, the distribution of shareholder returns, and companies that were at the higher end with those differences being more pronounced in some industries than others. And what's driving this is that, especially over the course of last year, that in some industries, some companies were much more impacted by uh, the pandemic than others. Some were actually impacted in a almost positive way, while others like saw their business um, hurt quite significantly. That includes entertainment, for example. So it includes online gaming, as well as it includes um, theme parks or um, casinos, right? And if you compare the two, like online gaming actually did particularly well over the course of last year, uh, while casinos and, um, uh, and theme parks did not, right, because of the travel bans and, and lockdowns. And, and that, that pattern you can find, we can all find across 
many industries. So it's really driving a lot of the um, variance here is companies pulling ahead at the top of the distribution, right? It's it's kind of a group of companies that has very, very high uh, shareholder returns. Uh, and that basically makes the distribution wider, much so much more so than like companies having particularly low uh, shareholder returns at the bottom end. I think our important point here is that this, this also reinforces the point that the market is not, it actually does look into the performance and potential of each company and, and, and differentiates that. So it is important to realize that the market doesn't reacting the sort of uh, you know hitting everybody the same, even within an industry. Uh, so it is it is a good sign that the market is really thinking about what what the impact of and what the performance will be of each company going forward. Got it. And Peter, in in the article, you call this group of companies with extremely high shareholder returns the Mega Twenty Five. Can you explain exactly how you defined and created that Mega Twenty Five group? Yeah, let, let's do that. Um, so the Mega 25, that's the group of companies that added the most market cap in absolute terms over the course of this year, right? between February 19, 2020 and February 19, 2021, with the companies that, uh, that grew the most in terms of market capitalization. Uh, we realized when we were doing the research that there was a small number of companies that accounted for a significant share, right? So it was really... And that really changed the picture. We included 5,000 in the analysis for the sample, which explains most of the markets. Uh, but only 25 of them accounted for 40% of the market cap added last year. So it was important to kind of take them out of the overall sample and treat them as a separate group. Uh, and I think that added that actually adds quite a bit of, um, of insight to the analysis. That is a huge number for 25 companies out of 5,000 driving 40% of the total market cap added over the last year. Wow. Um, given that such a small number of companies represented such a large shift in the overall capital markets picture. Does that help explain why the stock market performance over the past year seems to have been so much better than what the overall economy was experiencing in in general? Yeah, there's a disconnect, right? And there's a reason for that disconnect. And, And part of the reason that the stock market could do so well while the economy is weak was because of this valuation of these, of these mega 25 companies. There are other factors as well, but this is a big part of the disconnect between what was happening to the economy and the stock market. Yeah, this is not a random group, but there's some clear patterns, right, um, as to which type of companies are included here. Um, almost half of the total market cap added was actually added by North American technology companies. That includes big tech, but it also includes um, some payment companies and other companies that benefited or like did particularly well last year. And then the second biggest group is is Chinese and Asian technology companies. Again, a very similar pattern. Companies that uh, benefited from the working from home, online shopping, online entertainment kind of trends, right? Um, digital payments. The third biggest bucket is actually electric vehicles. Uh, I mean, we all have seen Tesla's share shares increase massively over the course of last year, but it's actually not just Tesla, right? And then um, the other big group is uh, semiconductors, um, where I think we've seen the stories of chip shortages and um, and and this increasing demand for for uh, semiconductors uh, going into all sets of uh, devices and cars and so on. And finally, um, there's a couple of um, Chinese consumers, uh, consumer goods companies uh, that that did very well last year. 
the Chinese market is slightly different because the recovery from the pandemic has happened much faster there and sooner, right? So we're seeing a slightly different trend in China, even though the big trend toward technology falls in China as well as it does in North America. So were there any new or emerging trends beyond those driven by the pandemic that helped companies in those sectors perform so well? I think one really important point to mention here is that nothing here is particularly surprising, right? We're not seeing that like any trends that came out of nowhere that nobody's expected, right? We're seeing that um, trends that were already there before the pandemic actually accelerated and got stronger. Um, and, um, and companies that did well before the pandemic, actually, all of them did particularly well during the pandemic. It was not that like uh, there was a reversal or anything like that. I mean, there were some isolated cases, like, like the travel industry, right? But, um, but the big story here is really this acceleration and amplification of existing trends. Okay, so given the massive market cap of these mega 25 companies, both individually and in aggregate, should investors worry that maybe the sectors that those companies are in may be in a bubble? Tim, could you respond? Yeah. So a bubble is when uh, share prices of a company or a sector, or sometimes the entire market, rise to a level that is all out of line with potential economic fundamentals, driven by somewhat irrational demand, if you will. And ultimately, all bubbles burst, right? So you can see a bubble certainly after the fact when the share prices come back down. So after the fact, it's easy to see what, when, when there was a bubble. If something goes up quickly and then it comes down quickly, that usually was a bubble. Let's go back to the, to the, to the 1999-2000 tech boom. We saw the bubble there. We've seen bubbles in utility stocks in the U.S. We've seen bubbles in biotech. Um, they usually don't last more than um, a couple of years. I think the question is, what are the economics that would sustain the valuations of those mega-25 companies? One of the things that we like to do is, and I'd encourage people to try to do, is to reverse engineer the stock prices. If a company is worth a trillion dollars or $750 billion, what would you have to believe about their future performance? One of the things we know is that ultimately, you know, businesses mature, and their valuations will always come into line with their economics. At least that's always been the case. Another thing to look for when bub- when you're looking for bubbles is whether or not um, what's driving the, bu- dri- the share price up. Is it retail investors or is it institutional investors? And typically, you find that if you see that it's retail investors driving up sh- share prices of certain companies, that's more likely to indicate a bubble. And the reason that that creates bubbles is because the way the markets, the markets are not perfectly liquid. Uh, it is difficult to, if you, if you think a stock is overvalued, um, it's very difficult to bet against that stock, right? You can short a stock, but shorting is very risky because the share price could keep going up for a while, even if you're right. This happened in the, you know, in, in, in 1999 and 2000 in, in tech, it happened in 2008 or so, 2007 and 2008 in, in the real estate market. You know, there were a lot of people who were right that the markets were in a bubble in certain sectors, uh, but they went bankrupt in the, because, they, because they couldn't you know, provide enough capital to maintain their positions until they were proven right. So it's very risky. So what you, what you tend to see when you see a bubble 
is you see retail investors buying certain stocks and institutions sitting on the side. And that often is an indicator of that the institutions, the more sophisticated investors, uh, think that those stocks are overvalued. So something, something to think about. One of the interesting things is uh, that, 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 you know, when, when you're asking the question sort of what's driving this market, normally what you find is that, and, and this is the, um, uh, the, 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 the U.S. market, if you will, um, published statistics typically uh, show a weighted average price-earnings ratio, weighted by the market caps of the companies. The weighted average is extremely high at 23 right now, right? 23 multiple, which is, which is really high. But what's interesting is the median is much lower at 16, right? Uh, and if you look over time, you'll see that the median has been fairly constant and this goes back 15 years. Actually, if you go back even farther, even to the 60s, you'll see the same kind of numbers, right? So for the most part, you know, ignoring some strange years like 2008, you know, you'll see that the multiples in the, um, the median multiple, typical, lar- typical large company in the U.S. trades uh, at a multiple of, say, 13 to 16, right? And that fluctuates, whereas you can see periods of time here, particularly the last two years where, you see that the median, the, the weighted average deviating substantially from the median, which means that there's a handful of very large companies which are distorting that number. Uh, so this is important to realize because if, if you, whether or not you think there's a bubble or not, right, what this tells us is that the typical company, the median company, is valued the same as it always is, has been, you know, roughly 16 times, right? That goes back in history. If the cost of equity had gone down, the median company should be valued much more highly than it is. If the cost of equity had gone down, you'd expect to see the median company trading at a 25 multiple or, 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 or higher. You see there hasn't been any change. This is further evidence that cost of equity hasn't changed. Uh, but it does you know, indicate that uh, you know, if you want to look at the market, it's important to sort of see what's going on underneath it, and this might sort of lead you to think differently when you look at the difference between the weighted average and the median in the, in, in the market. So let's dig a little bit deeper on this bubble question, Tim. Considering what you just explained regarding historic and current multiples, do you think the mega 25 have entered bubble territory? I should also mention for our listeners that there's a link to the article in the show notes if you'd like to see the entire list of the mega 25. Yeah, well, we've we've done some back of the envelope calculations on some of those mega twenty five companies, and for some of them, it is hard to imagine that they could achieve a level of performance that is far beyond what it is today on a sustainable basis. Right? If you look at things like, you know, a lot of some of those. Some of those companies uh, rely on primarily on advertising for their revenues, right? So, you know, and there's a limit as to how much an economy can spend on advertising, and they've already captured a big chunk of it. And so the question is, you know, do we believe that they'll be able to be successful in other businesses? So you have to bet that other, you know, either you have to believe that advertising as a percentage of the whole economy will increase, right? which is highly unlikely, or you have to believe that they'll find new sources of revenues, right, in order to justify that. You know, if you look at each company and you look at some of their, you know, if you look at their core businesses of some of those high-flying companies, you'd see that, 
you know, the, the valuation is unlikely to be justified by their core business. So you have to believe that they're going to be able to do new things that will create massive amounts of value, uh, which, you know, it's just, it's just a harder thing because you typically don't see that. You know, if you go back, uh, you find that in time, you find that most companies, when they are majorly successful in a, in a particular market doing one thing, it's rare that the second or third thing that they do creates near, nearly as much value as the first thing that they've done that creates value. So, you know, to put it in a nutshell, uh, I'm skeptical about the sustainability of the share prices. I'm not giving investment advice but I'm skeptical about the sustainability just based on modeling out what you'd have to believe for those companies. And we're not taking investment advice, but do the mega 25 companies share any similarities in their balance sheet properties or capital structure that maybe help them become such incredible value creators? There really isn't any, anything significant about the capital structures that's driving these companies. And if the fact is most of these companies are capital light companies. They generate lots of cash flows. They do have little debt because they generate so much cash flow, even though they're growing fast. Because they don't, because they're capital light, they don't have a lot of physical assets. They're able to return a lot of cash to shareholders, right? But what's really driving it is the generation of cash flows. Okay, so unlike past bubbles, these companies are not just speculative investments. They have real earnings and real cash flow, as you say. I wonder if the winner-take-all scenarios that seem to be emerging more and more in the digital arena or maybe also playing a role in these companies' valuations. Yes, that is a phenomenon that does, that, that does exist. But that exists, the concept of winner-take-all exists only in a specific market, like, say, advertising, right? So, you know, it, just because you, you know, winner-take-all may shift, or, you know, online advertising is becoming a bigger part of advertising, and online advertising shifts to certain players, for example, uh, so there is sort of a winner-take-all type of type aspect there, but there is a limit as to how big the advertising business can be. Companies are only willing to spend so much of their businesses, their, their business on, on their money on advertising. And secondly, it's not clear that the other businesses that they're trying to get into will have the same winner-take-all characteristics, right? Lots of companies now are entering into electric vehicles, right? Uh, both new players, some of the new players have very high valuations. Uh, uh, existing players are, 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 are doing it as well. If you look at the history of the automobile industry, most innovation has been copied, right? And automobiles don't have the characteristics, right, of, of say, advertising where it's a winner-take-all type business, right? Consumers are willing to switch from brand to brand, um, depending upon who's got the latest, greatest thing. And by the way, the other company is going to catch up to them in a couple of years. So the differentiation uh, is much smaller, let's say, in the automobile industry. And if you look at the automobile industry over time, almost all of the value that's been created from innovation has flowed to the consumers. And so you'd expect that to be the case going forward as well. So if you're looking at electric vehicles, you'd have to say, can the margins, how, you know, you'd sort of say, you know, there are still going to be, you know, 10 or 15 major global automobile companies competing very vigorously to the benefit of the consumer, right? And so profit margins, you know, can only go up so high, right? Uh, so if any of these 
companies are going to be worth, you know, a trillion dollars or more, they're going to have to do something else, right? And a lot of these other businesses that they're getting into, uh, batteries as well, it's not clear that those are going to be winner-take-all type industries. So you really have to ask the question, which of these companies are in winner-take-all businesses and which are not? Thanks, Tim. That was very helpful. Um, as central bank easing comes online and government bond values are potentially negatively impacted, is it possible that the mega 25 became less risky and therefore more attractive from an asset allocation perspective? Um, if you're a big institutional investor, could that be some of what's going on here in terms of the, uh, the increase in the pricing? I think that's conceivable. Investors are looking for other ways to make money. Uh, but I think for, if you're an institutional investor, you're going to be very cautious about a company that is valued so highly because, you know, what matters is what's the value going to be in five years, right? Uh, not what it is right now. So uh, chasing trends is, 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 it can be dangerous because you're often behind, right? And so if you're not investing based on fundamental, right, you know, what do you think the long-term performance of the company will be? You're investing because, oh, every, you know, the price is going up. You have to make sure that you're smart enough on timing to make sure that if the prices come back down, you get out in time, right? So I don't think that's a big driver. I don't think it's being driven up by institutional investors. I think those clouds of mega 25 subbies are being driven up by retail investors and the institutions are sitting on the sidelines because they're not sure whether those numbers are sustainable or not. Thanks. I'd like to come back, Tim, to the point you made earlier about the disconnect between the capital markets and the broader economy. You mentioned that those top outperformers are a factor, but are there any other reasons why the markets have performed so well, even though our, our economies around the world have been in such a deep downturn? The reason for that is that the economy and the stock market rep are, 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 have different characteristics in terms of different industries, right? The real economy um, employs and has a lot of uh, activity in sectors which are not traded on the stock market because they're not public companies. In the U.S. in particular, real estate and construction, for the most part, those are not public companies. They're small mom-and-pop companies. Professional and technical services uh, are not public companies. Uh, healthcare services, doctor's offices, et cetera, hospitals are not public companies. Most hospitals are nonprofits. Um, and so, um, you'll see that the, where, where employment and, and also, by the way, you know, there's a big employment, although it's not a big part of the economy in restaurants and hospitality. Once again, in restaurants, not part, not publicly listed companies for the most part, right? Publicly listed companies tend to be concentrated in technology, uh, pharmaceuticals and medical devices and finance and insurance, right? And particularly the technology and the, and the pharmaceutical companies have done particularly well, as we've shown throughout this thing. And so that's why there is a disconnect, because the stock market does not represent the, 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 the real economy, particularly in the U.S. It's a little, it's not as extreme in other markets, but particularly in the U.S. And part of it is in the U.S. The fact is that a lot of technology and pharma companies are biggest or are, are major effectively exporters, right? Uh, so they earn a lot of their profits from outside the U.S., so which doesn't directly contribute to employment, um, and, or, uh, but it does uh, uh, really affect their stock market value. So there's a good reason for it. It's neither good nor bad. 
Uh, it's just it's just a, a, a fact of life, if you will, that, that that there's a difference between the composition of the real economy and the composition of the stock market. Thank you. As you mentioned, stock market composition is also different around the world. How has capital market performance varied across the regions during the past year? Have they all seen similar increases in trends? China uh, up forty percent. Uh, North America up twenty two percent. Asia, ex-China, 20, 20%. Uh, a lot of this has to do with different compositions in the economy and also different uh, number of companies having, different different regions having mega 25 companies. The TSR, for the return to shareholders for the North American market. North American market up 22%. Um, on this, once again, this is a weighted average. Uh, mega 25 counted for 8% of that. Europe doesn't have any many many of those mega cap companies, so that takes seven percent on their off their return. Their industry mix is a little bit more skewed towards companies that don't that are not performing as well. They don't have as many technology and pharma companies in the in the, in the mix. And then finally, the 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 change in profit expectations for the year was 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 much more negative than than, than in the U.S. Asia, which is just behind the U.S. Asia, excluding China. It doesn't have the mega cap companies either. Industry mix and change in profit expectation is small. And then greater China, you see that they actually were more influenced by the mega 25 than the U.S. The industry mix is a negative. Lots of big state-owned companies, lots of heavy industry, et cetera. Profit margin, profits, though, went up. Profit expectations in the near term went up substantially. And the multiples went up even more than the U.S. So you do see some some differences, and you can see the differences across the regions, typically driven by the composition of uh, the the companies in terms of both return on capital. America, North America, it's more about return on capital being very high. Europe, Asia, it's more about uh, tending to have faster growth. Uh, Tim, Peter, thanks so much for this fascinating discussion today. Uh, we enjoyed it anytime, Sean. Thanks, Sean. It was great. We hope all our listeners enjoyed the discussion as well. And just a reminder, we'll be including a link to the articles on which this conversation was based in the description of our podcast. You can also find the transcript of our conversation on our Inside the Strategy Room collection page at mckinsey.com slash ITSR for Inside the Strategy Room, where you can also easily explore, filter, and search our library of more than 50 previous episodes. If you'd like to share feedback or an idea for a future podcast episode, please email us at insidethestrategyroom at mckinsey.com. Finally, if you'd like to receive alerts on our latest strategy and corporate finance insights, you can sign up on our podcast collection page on mckinsey.com. Follow us on Twitter at MCK Strategy or connect with us on LinkedIn by visiting the McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice page there. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again soon inside the Strategy Room.